numbers are a little down because people decide they'd rather think about membership than listen to me drone along. For... So, all right, well, let me open our time together uh, with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do thank you for your loving kindness and your faithfulness uh, to your people. Though we turn our backs uh, on you so often, uh, you never stop and your um, call to us to turn back to you um, and to find uh, forgiveness uh, in your and mercy at your hands. We pray that you would give us hearts uh, filled with uh, genuine repentance that we would not just be sorry for our sins in word only, um, but that uh, we would show our repentance through our acts of obedience uh, and being faithful to you. And we thank you for uh, that our acceptance before you isn't because of our obedience, but because of the obedience of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who took the wrath that we so justly deserved and gave us and clothed us uh, with his righteousness that we could um, be with you and in your presence. And we look forward to that day that Jeremiah uh, tells us about uh, in our passage this morning um, where there will be no need for an Ark of the Covenant uh, because your law will be written on our hearts. There will be no need for a temple because you will there be present among your people. Um, and uh, we look forward to the day where it's uh, all nations uh, come to your heavenly Jerusalem and find uh, um, forgiveness and acceptance and eternal life uh, in and through you. Uh, we pray now that um, you would teach us this morning by your word. May the same spirit that you gave the prophet Jeremiah uh, guide us into uh, truth um, that we would not just be um, hearers of your word, but that we would um, take it to heart and that you would uh, instruct our actions as well as our minds. Teach us now, we pray, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, just to give you a little recap. Uh, so last week, uh, we jumped into the first major prophetic section of the book of Jeremiah. So after his testing visions in chapter 1, in chapter 2, Jeremiah presented a series of charges against Judah for its violation of God's covenant. Um, he started by recounting the honeymoon period of his relationship with his bride Israel, uh, who lovingly followed God through the wilderness, but subsequent generations uh, of people did not ask after God or ask, you know, where is the Lord, nor did their political and spiritual leaders. Although they had experienced the love and provision of God, they turned away from him in pursuit of other gods and help from other nations. They traded in the true God for gods of wood and stone who were no gods at all. They rejected the fount of living waters for broken cisterns of their own making. And perhaps worst of all, they denied any wrongdoing protesting their innocence despite the clear and visible evidence of their sin and idolatry. The theological thrust of last week was that Yahweh's elect people offended against the covenant and stood under judgment. 
this prophecy appeared at the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry and places it historically at the point when Judah, in grave political peril, broke her covenant with Yahweh and entered into forbidden alliances, both with neighboring nations and with pagan deities. So in chapter 2, God's word to Jeremiah concentrated on the sheer perversity of Judah's unfaithfulness and their departure from walking in his ways. So today, as we get into chapter 3, we'll have another vivid description of Israel's unfaithfulness, uh, again, using that language of adultery. Um, but we'll also have a passionate plea for uh, repentance um, and the promise of Yahweh's forgiveness and mercy. Um, and this is going to be a theological emphasis that Jeremiah returns to again and again. Israel had turned away, but she could still turn back and enjoy divine forgiveness and restoration. Amidst their idolatry and their hypocrisy and their empty false repentance, God calls them to return. In chapter 2, they turn their back on God, but today we will see God calling them to turn back to him. So with that as a word of introduction, uh, let me read for us Jeremiah chapter 3. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see, where have you... Where have you not been ravished? By the waysides you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a whore. You have refused, you refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me? My father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithful one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. 
I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and increased in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for heritage. I said, how would I set you among my sons, and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father, and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons, because they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord, our God. Truly, the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly, in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. But from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, their flocks and their herds and their sons and their daughters, let us lie down in our shame and let us dishonor, let our dishonor cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth, even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it as we speak of it this morning. All right, so our passage today, chapter 3, we're going to break it into basically four parts. So this first part, verses 1 through 5, um, to give you a little sense of this, um, if you remember back when chapter 1, when I was describing the context of the book, and we saw the, you know, he mentions King Josiah, and I said one of the most important things that happens in the reign of King Josiah is the discovery in the temple of the book of the law. Um, and uh, most people think that book of the law was the book of Deuteronomy. And Jeremiah makes lots of use of the book of Deuteronomy. And so chapter 3 begins with a direct reference to Deuteronomy. So let me read for, for you. This is Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, after she has been defiled, for that is, that is an abomination before the Lord." And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So we see at the beginning of chapter 3, 
um, Jeremiah referencing uh, explicitly that law from Deuteronomy. So how does Jeremiah apply Deuteronomy's laws concerning divorce as a metaphor to describe Israel's relationship with God? Yeah, right. Yeah, and with this, they're not just uh, um, other nations, but other gods. Like the, the reference there to, you've played the whore with many lovers, and then lift your eyes up to the bare heights and see where have you not been ravished. Like, again, those heights are where the places where altars to Canaanite gods would have been um, placed. So, yeah, they're, they're worse than the, the person in Deuteronomy. That person was unfaithful was divorced and married someone else, um, as you say, this <laughs> Israel, in this case, or Judah, it, it hasn't just um, committed adultery and married someone else. Like, she's left her true husband, God, and has pursued many lovers uh, like a prostitute. As you, and as you say, that word is stamped all over um, the first half of this chapter. Like, it's... She's prostituted herself. She's gone out of her way to prostitute herself to other gods and other nations. Yes, so um, multiple Canaanite deities, uh, including Baal, used cultic prostitution. So like part of the worship itself, there would be rather, you know, rather than having elders, you'd have prostitutes that you'd go, you know, couple with. And the idea is by engaging in ritualistic sexual activities, you're helping the earth itself become fertile. Um, the you know, and you get references to that here. Like part of the punishment is um, therefore the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. So like they're engaging in the sexual activity as part of the ritualistic worship of these Canaanite gods to promote the earth's fertility, to encourage the skies to pour down rain, and God's withholding the rain from them in punishment. So they think engaging in this will bring these material blessings. Um, and God, in his sovereignty, is withholding the blessings. And But rather than repent, notice, like, rather than being ashamed of what they've done, that line, yet you have the forehead of a whore, who, you refuse to be ashamed. And the image there, he, he wants to, like, like, what's your posture, like, when you're ashamed? Or, you know, remember when you were a child and you were ashamed for something? You know? Head down, like, you know, you, you realize your shame, you're bowed down. What do you do when you're not ashamed? Chin up, forehead out. It's that idea, like, you know, it's brazen. Um, despite of what um, 
God is doing to try to correct their idolatrous ways. And they're, you know, like, when you're in a pursuing a religion that it's supposed to, you know, be like a Coke machine, like you do the ritual, this effect results, and you're doing the ritual, and you're doing the ritual, and you're doing the ritual, and nothing's happening. That should be, <laughs> you know, um, a wake-up call that maybe this isn't <laughs> what we should be doing. Maybe this is not the way it's supposed to, or, yeah, it's not the way it works, uh, reality. You know, like, we've been sold a lie. Um, but rather than doing that, they're stubbornly, brazenly, forehead up, persisting in their sinful actions, which involves... Like, and again, it's the way he's using the image of their adultery with him, but there's all kinds of sexual immorality that goes in, that's you know, carried along with the worship of these other gods. So they've adulterated themselves to other gods in kind of multiple ways. Does that answer? Yeah. Like, because the, the worship of these Canaanite gods in, involves sexual acts. Um, so they're violating God's commands. Like, you can kind of think of it, they're violating both tables of God's commands. Like, you got the vertical, their relationship with God. They're adulterating that <laughs> by going after other gods. And then the commands that connect human beings to one another they're violating those. Like God has explicitly said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And that's what they're doing in their pursuit of these other, um, the, the gods of the nations around them. Good. What else um, stands out to you about this use of Deuteronomy here to uh, condemn Israel for its sins? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, and again, it's a metaphor. So, like, they know they are in covenant relationship with this God, and they, they're choosing to break that covenant. Um, so, just like, like, I mean, marriage is probably the most familiar covenant that we still perform. Like, but for them, they have entered into this solemn agreement of exclusivity with their God, and they have violated that um, covenant by going after multitudes of gods. Um, and they're influenced in, in their, the, to, to go back to the idea that, that Ronnie raised, like it's for their pursuit of the other nations. That too is related to pursuit of other gods. Because an alliance with Assyria means you have to da bow down to, before Ashtar. Like, so it's not like, oh yeah, you know, we'll come help you, yeah, We'll come help you bow down before our gods to, to show that you know, you're trusting in the forces that govern us. So it's um, you know pursuing other nations leads to the pursuit of other gods. Um, seeing what their neighbors are doing and following them and their rit rituals 
is leading them into sexual immorality. So it's this chain of, of sin that keeps dragging them lower and lower. Yeah, David. Yeah, there, and um, there's a, I'm trying to find, um, there's this great quote um, in here about, um, that, that kind of applies it. It, it, and the idea is these other nations are presenting themselves as, as being so tolerant, um, and, and yet what they don't tolerate is people speaking God's truth to them. So it's like, yeah, we're tolerant, like we'll tolerate all these other actions. Um, here it is. Uh, this is an aspect of their behavior that Jeremiah had not previously mentioned. Those who present themselves as tolerant of the beliefs of others frequently respond quite differently when exposed to the searching critique of divine truth. Then it is seen that their inclusiveness extends only to all varieties of error not to the truth. Um, so it's that, I think that's a great, you know, reminder, like, you know, the societies around them are permitting, or uh, presenting themselves as being permissively inclusive, but what they won't tolerate is the, um, the emphasis on God's call to his people, you know, the call of truth to to see what they're doing as shameful, to repent and turn from it. Notice um, also as we in this um, as we get ready to turn to the next section, um, there is a element of false repentance that's also involved. So they're committing idolatry, but then they're saying. My father, you're my friend of my youth. Will you be angry forever? Will he not be indignant to the? Will he be indignant to the end? Um, but Jeremiah is calling them on that. Behold, you've spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. So I think this is a helpful picture of um, and warning against false repentance. You know, repentance that comes from words only. It's like, you know, I'm sorry, and then you go keep on doing the same thing over and over again. And so this is the only passage, notice in verse 6, he mentions uh, the Lord came to me in the days of King Josiah. In chapters 1 through 20, this is the only mention of a specific time period, and even this, like the King Josiah's reign <laughs> and overlap with Jeremiah's ministry, uh, is long, so we're, we're not given a specific moment. But Jeremiah's prophetic ministry started right around the same time that Josiah had found the, the book of the law and had started to institute reforms amongst the people of Judah. So, you know, you, you have this, more than just Jeremiah, at this moment, you have all this religious reform going on and what Jeremiah is saying, yeah, you're, you're saying the right words, but 
you're still doing these other sinful actions repeatedly. Like you're not changing your behaviors at all. Um, so you're engaging in maybe the correct ritual worship, but you're not putting away all the false worship that goes along with it. So, so Josiah is, um, if you, um, in chapter one, so Jeremiah starts his prophecy in the 13th year of, of King Josiah's reign. Um, so that's when the word of the Lord came to him. Um, so um, right around that time, in the 18th year of King Josiah's reign, the book of the law is discovered in the temple. So right at when Jeremiah is beginning to be a prophet, um, he's the son of priests, but there's no evidence that Jeremiah himself ever served as a priest. He never describes himself as a priest. So he's called, he makes it very clear in chapter one, he's called to be a prophet. So he's prophesying during the reign of Josiah um, and Josiah's reign is kind of cut short because Josiah tries to interfere with the Egyptians going up to help the Assyrians against the Babylonians. Um, so, so Jeremiah starts to institute reforms to bring Israel or bring Judah back from the dark days of Manasseh and Amon, Josiah's father, to um, back to faithfulness to God. But he's cut off. Um, and then his sons uh, are, you know, returned to their grandfather's wicked ways. So it's... We don't know. I mean, I mean, Jeremiah is definitely part of, of Josiah's reform efforts, because here you have a prophet who's saying <laughs> things that agree with the exact things Josiah is going to be doing. So I'm sure Josiah tells, you know, um, knows about Jeremiah and supports what Jeremiah is doing, and I'm sure Jeremiah supports what Josiah is doing. But we, we just, we're like, again, this is the only time Josiah in these first 20 chapters is mentioned, and it's not anything specific. We get a lot more specific interactions between um, Jeremiah and um, the next two kings, Jehoiakim, or the next two <laughs> kings who actually reigned more than three months, um, Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, like later on the book, like we're, we're gonna see him physically interacting with them, having conversations with them. So I would imagine if he's conversant with the latter kings who don't like him, <laughs> Um, surely he was conversant with Josiah, who would have liked him, um, but that's speculation on my part. So he doesn't go into that kind of level of detail. Yes. Yeah, and they, uh, some people have, have argued, like, all right, well, why does that law exist? Uh, and the usual, it's to protect the validity of the second marriage. So, so to make the second marriage a real marriage, you can't have this kind of loophole where the wife can refer, return to the first husband. Like, it, to, to protect the integrity of, I mean, again, that's 
why does that law exist, that, that's the answer most people give. It's to protect the integrity of the second marriage. So, well, again, uh, not to dig into the, to the weeds of that. He's giving Israel a, um, we, we see here, he gives Israel a certificate of divorce. He doesn't apply that language to Judah, um, you know, which is a good transition to, to this next section um, in verses 6 through 11, where he compares faithless Israel and treacherous Judah. So, at this point, Israel has been dragged off into captivity for, and been gone for almost a hundred years. So, you know, you know, so he's referring to what happened to the northern kingdom, those northern tribes, and he's using that <laughs> to, to say, why are y'all expecting a different outcome? So the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity because of its faithlessness in 721 BC. So why does Jeremiah say that Judah, in the days of good King Josiah, again, he, he's clearly saying, like he's, this isn't a prophecy that's coming later, where we clearly see Judah being unfaithful. This is in the middle of um, reforms going on. Why does Jeremiah say Judah is worse than her sister kingdom of Israel? What does he tell us about these two sisters? Well, so look how he's focused. So have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? So he's starting with not, yeah, yes, Judah, he's using the analogy of Judah being married God, but so is Israel. Um, and so he's starting, your sister, you know, who was also my bride, you know, I gave her a certificate of divorce, and you're worse. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so what, what do we see in this description? Israel had turned their back on God and paid the penalty, and Judah watched it. And now Judah's turned her back on God, like, in full knowledge. Like, Israel, like, yes, they were told this would happen in the law, but, you know, they could maybe go, well, God would never do that to us. You know, we're his people, you know. He's, he's, he's full of loving kindness and forgiveness. We can just keep doing it and getting away from it, and, and God says no, and he punishes them and does exactly what he said would happen. Again, in the book of Deuteronomy, if you do not obey, I will take the land from you. Um, you know, this is the curse that will fall on you. There are lots of blessings for obedience, but there are curses for disobedience, and Judah saw the curses come to pass. Judah saw God was faithful to, to his word to bring about the judgment, he said, that would befall um, his people should they disobey. 
Israel sinned. Israel didn't repent, turned their back on God, and were dragged off into captivity. And <laughs> Jeremiah's like, why do you think you're going to have a different outcome? <laughs> um, why do you think like, you're going to be immune to this? You've seen it happen. Israel was faithless, you're faithless. And even worse, you're faithless and treacherous and deceitful. Like, again, it's not only have they not turned away from the worship of these idols, but, again, have devoted themselves. <laughs> Better get away from the podium before I do damage. Um, has devoted um, themselves to even further in the pursuit of these gods. Um, and we'll see later on, um, you know, why are they doing this? Well, some of it, again, that deceitfulness, I think, is this. They're saying things with their lips not changing their actions one iota. So um, what Jeremiah, and as, again, as we think about this happening in the, the, you know, the days of King Josiah, who's trying to reform the people and turn them back to the worship of the true God to eliminate these idols. I mean, again, if you go to 2 Kings, that's what Josiah is trying to root idol worship out of the land. Um, and, and what Jeremiah is saying it's, it's not taking root in the heart. It might lead to some outward lip service. Um, oh, yeah, you know, Baals are bad. Yay, Yahweh. Um, but, you know, in their hearts, they're still far from God. Like, again, it's the, the way, like, you know, by saying and entering into the, to the worship of God, like, they're trying to deceive God <laughs> by worshiping him, but also continuing to worship all the idols. But at the heart of it, it's, it's that self-deceit. Like, you know, they don't see their own. And, and we saw that last week. Um, behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying I've not sinned. Um, you know, they say, um, uh, where is it? Um, how can you say I'm not unclean? I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. <laughs> know what you've done. Like, he's like, what's that over there? <laughs> what's that smoking pot with the body of an infant in it? What's that bare hill that you stripped of the trees so you could put your... Um, idol on the top of it and go worship there. Like, don't tell me <laughs> that that um, you're not sinful. Like, the landscape itself bears testimony of your repeated and continual sinful actions. So to say um, we've not sinned, it's a lie to God, but even more so, it's a lie to themselves. Um, they're ignoring all the evidence uh, around them, um, 
and so they're lying to me, but they're also lying to themselves. Again, I used the analogy last week of like the kid you go in who's strewn flour all over the house, and then you're like, well, what happened? It wasn't me. <laughs> Child's covered with flour. <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah, you're lying to me, but uh, I think there's some self-deceit going on here too, and you're not recognizing, oh, yeah, um, uh, it's got, my handprints are everywhere, my footprints are everywhere. <laughs> uh, how can I say uh, this has nothing to do with me? Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's a picture of Judah is, is even more uh, um, unrighteous because Israel did it and was punished. And I mean, it's like older brothers and younger brothers kind of thing. Like, I saw my older brother do it and get punished. <laughs> and then I tried to do the same thing, like uh, the punishment. <laughs> like he did it, got caught, paid the penalty. I did it after seeing him do it, get caught and pay the penalty. <laughs> like I'm going into it with my eyes wide open and I'm still like, again, it's that rather than feeling ashamed about it, it's that willful brazen acting. Willfully, they, and that word for pretense there, but in pretense, um, you know, that, that's lying. Like, you know, they, they it's deceptive. Yeah, they're treacherous. They're deceptive. They say they're going along, but in reality, like, again, it's, it's like to use the two brothers, like, you know, like my older brother, Kevin, you know, was the one who... <laughs> did everything, <laughs> like, you know, he, he was the, um, uh, you know, the, the rebel in the family, <laughs> and, and, you know, um, I was the, the, you know, angelic suck-up, um, you know, that, oh, I, you know, never do anything wrong, you know, but I, I was, in reality, I was just as bad as him, but while his was open, mine was worse because it was deceitful, like, I was presenting one face to my parents, and, and acting in a completely different manner. And so I think it's, as you say, it's, it's, it's not just stupidity, it is that treachery involved. Saying you're one thing and doing a complete opposite thing, you know, the hypocrisy uh, involved that, that God is trying to expose here. Okay, good, well let's turn to the next session, section. So here we've, he's, he's been hammering them that with uh, adultery, with harlotry, uh, he's given this, like, you know, um, description of, of all the reasons he has to, um, to, to remove from them, and yet the refrain uh, starting in verse uh, 12, and notice it, 
it's repeated four times if you go to the beginning of chapter four, return. Um, so in, immediately after saying Judah's sins was far worse than Israel, God instructs Jeremiah to preach these words toward the north. So the north is where Israel should have been, <laughs> but wasn't. Um, where the nations of Israel once were, and where survivors still remain. So um, again, Josiah is trying to incorporate the survivors of Israel into his kingdom. Um, but that's also, the north is also the direction he's told us where judgment's going to come. Remember that image of the bowling, bowling pot tilting from the north. So he knows judgment. So God tells him to turn to the north where the Israel once was, where disaster is going to befall Judah, and preach the, these words. And the first word of that message and the repeat, repeated refrain is return. Um, so, yeah, what strikes you about this message that God is giving um, to the north, to Israel, in verses 12 to 18? What do we see in his calling his people to return? Here, Ronnie. Yeah, it's like, and again, we know Jerusalem's doomed, <laughs> you know, and, and even Jeremiah, back in the first verses of the book, tell us Jerusalem's doomed. Um, and yet he's still, you know, this offer to repent and to turn back to God is real. Like, it's a real offer. Uh, that's being extended to the people. And it's a real offer that continues even after the people have been suffered captivity and judgment. So here you have an the, the image of the north is gone. You know, the northern nation of Israel has been taken off to captivity as a punishment um, of God's righteous anger against them and their sin. And even in that moment, God's saying, I will be merciful to you if you return. If you only acknowledge your guilt that you've rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners and under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord, return. You know, so return. Acknowledge your wrongdoing. Put away those idols. Come to me because I am merciful. No, you're absolutely right. And notice that carry, that actually carries through the whole end of the chapter. Even when he returns to condemnation a little later on, um, you know, uh, it, it's 
return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. So, you know, the, he, you're absolutely right. He's switching the metaphor here um, from an angry husband to an angry father who, who will have mercy on his, his children. Um, so, yeah, you're absolutely, absolutely right to, to seize on how he's switching the metaphor. And I, I think you're right. It's not a mistake that he's switching it at this moment of calling them to repentance. Return, O faithless children. Return, O faithless sons. You know, come back to me. You'll find me a loving father. Good. What else uh, stands out to you about this message um, of, or this call to repentance that God is extending to his people? Yeah. And notice how amazing the blessings uh, are going to be. Um, you know, and it starts with, with leadership. You know, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Like what a contrast that is. You know, we talked a lot about that last week. Um, you know, the priest did not say, where's the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal um, as a thief is shamed when caught. So the house of Israel shall be ashamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. So they've had leadership that has committed shameful actions and had led the people into shame. And now he's promising them the blessing of having shepherds, you know, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Um, shepherds after his own heart, not pursuing their own, um, their own desires, their own goals. Uh, and that is so often the um, temptation of leadership of any kind is to, you know, make oneself a petty tyrant. Um, I've been around universities long enough to like encounter chairs or um, deans or whatever official that is like, well, because I have this power, I'm going to wield it to do the things I want rather than um, maybe doing things that are in the university or institution's best interest. Like they, they get a little power and suddenly... <laughs> <laughs> you know, suddenly they're Nebuchadnezzar. It's, you know, it's that kind of, but, but that's not how leadership in, in Christ's church, and that's not the leadership we see depicted in the New Testament, where God is raising up leaders who shepherd his people, um, who, yes, exercise discipline, but do it in love and faithfulness, who shepherd not by... Um, not by being served, but making themselves servants of others. And so that's why servant leadership is often the, the term used for the New Testament's depiction of leadership, where even Jesus himself washes the feet of his disciples. And that is the model that the leaders of Christ's church are called to follow. Good. What are some of the, since Teresa has switched us to, to the blessings, um, what, are, what are some of the other blessings we see him calling them to? So return and uh, 
return to um, these blessings that are going to occur in those days. Here, Ronnie. Yeah, so absolutely, um, and he, he's, he's using this idea that um, their material pro prosperity, when you've multiplied and become fruitful in the land, um, is, is coupled with, with a religion that doesn't rely on material symbols or signs of God's presence, because God will be present. Um, and if you think of the Ark of Co the Covenant, the Ark of Covenant um, has multiple functions. One, it contains the law, so it's the repository of the commandments that God has given His people. Why why don't you need those commandments anymore? Because Jeremiah is going to tell us later on they're going to be written on your heart. You don't need them in a, an external form. I'm going to inscribe them on your your heart. Um, the, the Ark of the Covenant, you know, with the, the um, cherubim on top, you know, it, in a kind of seat-like posture, it's the throne of the Lord that's placed in the temple. You're not going to need <laughs> a symbolic throne of God anymore because, as he tells us, you're not going to need a temple anymore because God himself will be in your midst um, the function formerly played by the ark that is Yahweh's throne, the symbol of Yahweh's presence, will be played by Jerusalem itself, um, where, where God himself will be seated uh, you know, in the midst of his people. So, I mean, I was actually explaining this to, uh, ironically, I love how things overlap and I had no plan because I had no idea this question would come up. But in my class on Thursday, we were talking about um, uh, Puritan aesthetics. Um, so, you know, Puritans um, who are um, Baptist and Presbyterians, forebears in this country, um, uh, you know, exemplified um, this removal of, of altars. And so I'm trying to explain to them, you know, why that is. Um, and part of it is if you look at how Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox Church divide the Ten Commandments, they combine Commandments 1 and 2. So that you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for your image are linked. So making images... Um, is, is linked to the worship of false gods. But if you split them, as um, Reformed Protestants do and the Anglican Church does, then you're you know, making, making images of the true God is just as bad as making images of false gods. Um, and so um, 
so there is in reform tradition a, a great suspicion of things um, because things uh, distract one from what's really important, which is the word of God. Now, I'm not going to judge another tradition and say I'm right, they're wrong. Um, we probably reject symbols too much. If I'm, I mean, that's my personal opinion. Um, whereas they probably embrace them too much. So I would say we're probably both wrong. <laughs> um, but we're both wrong in trying to emphasize uh, something that's, that's hopefully true. So that's a diversion, but <laughs> digression. But that's my, in answer to your question, um, I, I, I always like examine myself before I start pointing the finger. And like, I think there is a role for symbolic language um, that, that we neglect. I mean, and we have symbols. We don't have a table yet, <laughs> uh, but we've got that. We're, we're gonna, I love these days where we get both um, Visible, the, you know, the Reformed tradition calls the sacraments the visible word of God. Um, you know, we, we get one uh, with baptism today, we'll get another one with the Lord's table. Um, it's, it's, we have a, a pared down symbolic language, but our symbolic language is deeply rooted in the word of God. Um, and here, notice the emphasis is on, you know, those days and for... Um, uh, I, I, the women probably haven't gotten this far in Revelation yet, <laughs> but, but they will get there. Um, let's see if I can find it in my notes. Um, so, you know, when, when you get to Revelation uh, 21, where um, John is talking about the new heavens and the new earth and this new Jerusalem, whose, quote, temple is the Lord God, you know, that that. Revelation, this is new covenant language he's giving us here. Uh, a picture of this new covenant where there's a new Jerusalem where the temple is the Lord God whose gates admit, quote, the glory and honor of the nations, Revelation 21, 26. And we see that here with, it's not just Israel, it's not just Judah, um, it's, you know, all the nations shall gather to it. Um, again, it's this redemptive picture of God bringing uh, all the peoples of the earth to a true worship of him in his presence where he has placed the law of the God in their hearts. All right, where are we? You don't need it anymore. <laughs> It's extraneous. Um, and the same thing with the temple. Like, uh, and, and part of this, he's trying to, um, we'll see this in the book, like why are they so brazen? Why are they so bold? Well, because they think they have these things. We have the ark. Surely God will never allow our city to be destroyed because the ark of his presence is here. We have the temple. Surely God will never let Jerusalem fall because his temple is here. They're putting their trust in the things. You know, when we see the same thing in Samuel where they, they think just by taking, God tells them don't attack the Philistines and they go up and do it anyway. And they think because we have the ark with us, we'll win. 
and they lose. <laughs> and the ark gets taken into the temple of Dagon, uh, who shows up headless and handless <laughs> um, in the following passages. But it's their reliance, think, because we have the thing, God won't, um, God won't bring this, this ultimate judgment and punishment on him. And, and Jeremiah, and he's doing it here in a gracious, positive way. Look, the ark is meaningless <laughs> um, apart from the true worship of God. Like, you know, the ark is a thing that's there to represent for you the presence of God himself and his law to govern your lives. Um, but if you're trusting that in the ark itself, rather than the God who commanded you to make it, you're going to be sorely disappointed. <laughs> um, if you're trusting, oh, we've got this glorious temple that Solomon made, and surely, like chapter 7, uh, he, he has this, this great line, and, and Matthew actually quoted it, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They were like, you know, We've got that, so, you know, we're good. <laughs> we don't have anything to fear. And he's saying, no, because <laughs> your, your hearts are far from me. You have everything to fear. If your heart is not near me in that temple, then having the temple itself is useless. And in fact, it's probably a positive harm because it's, you're trusting in it rather than trusting in me. Yeah, Dave. Um, there is a... Uh, we don't have time to do it now, and it's yeah, not, <laughs> not directly related, but Philip Jenkins has a book, um, and I think it's called, uh, I'll have to look up the exact title, but I think it's called Lost Christendom, which gives you, a, gives you that story of both the process by which Islam conquered these areas which, um, which were once heavily Christian and how they, um, over time, especially through commerce, um, brought people into uh, the Islamic faith by sort of making it materially beneficial to do so. Um, but yeah, so just a book plug, yeah. And there's like, again, God's faithful. He always preserves a, a remnant. Um, and we see that, you know, that remnant language here um, in this, you know, one from a city, two from a family, you know, look, I'm going to be faithful. Though you're going to be 
you know, Israel, the northern kingdom, has already been taken into captivity. Judah, the southern kingdom, is about to be taken in captivity in Jeremiah's lifetime. But God's saying, look, I will be faithful. I will preserve my remnant. I will bring you back. And the blessings I'm bringing you back to aren't just like the short term, yeah, I'm bringing you back to this physical land. Um, you know, we, we saw in Haggai, you know, rebuilding a physical temple. But he's saying that's just the, the proximate blessing. The ultimate blessing will be so much better. And it's in those days you won't need an ark. You won't need a temple. It won't just be you coming to Jerusalem. It's as Isaiah gives us the same picture in chapter 2 of, of Isaiah of all the nations streaming up the mount to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, to recognize that is where true glory lies. Um, and his message to us as, as we close is the same message that he's giving to, um, to Israel and Judah here, to return, to repent, um, to acknowledge, we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth, even to this day, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Um, and, and recognizing that truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. And notice that contrast in verse 23. Truly the hills are delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly is the Lord our God. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. So it's, it's coming to recognize that all these things that are the works of our own hands, all these material things, and again, I think... Um, uh, if I can find it quickly. Um, uh, so, um, you know, this is a, uh, this is a, just to quote this, this is a wake-up call for us in our day to smell the coffee and change our lifestyles before the threat and judgment comes on us as well. Can't we see that the judgment is coming very soon on us as it came on Israel and on Judah? Can't we see that all our trust in our technology, our economy, our military hardware, and our wisdom is doomed to fail if we do not come to Christ, who alone is the source of real living? We must change and turn to God in repentance, or the handwriting is already on the wall for our nation and all the nations of the world. Um, so with that, let me uh, close us in prayer. Gracious God, we do, uh, as we gather in your presence and as we will gather and worship as part of that worship, we'll acknowledge that uh, we are sinners um, who have fallen short uh, of the glory that you've called us to, that um, we do not obey with all our heart, uh, mind, soul, and strength, um, that uh, we are in need of repentance. Um, we're in need of, of changed hearts. So we pray um, that you would fill us with your spirit and work in us uh, the fruits of the Spirit that um, uh, reflect um, what you've called us to be, that we would respond to you not just with our lips, but in uh, our acts as well, that we would treat um, uh, all things as, as belonging to you um, and that no thing can take your place. Lord, uh, Help us to, to glory in you and help us to long uh, for the day of um, when Christ comes again, that we too, um, with those 
um, martyrs say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. May that be our call as well. Give us a taste of that heavenly worship and that heavenly glory, even as we come uh, in this coming hour uh, to worship you. Uh, fill us with your spirit that we may worship you in spirit and in truth. And we ask these things in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.